0: What I want to do is not give you the perfect answer to what caused the 2008 financial disaster, but group the various explanations into three basic categories and look how that affects the problems of implementation, how reform necessarily requires a fairly slow process of implementation that can get thwarted. So in that light, let me go to my first slide uh, and point out that a number of scholars have noted a fairly standard pattern. Uh, under which financial reform legislation is only adopted after a major market crash. And this pattern dates back, apparently, for centuries. We could talk first about the South Sea Bubbles. Uh, Now, I wasn't there, but Paul Davies is sitting here. It was really a quite traumatic experience. And it led... Uh, quite possibly, to an overreaction, the prohibition of private incorporation, which really continued right up to the beginning of the industrial area and the financing of railroads around 1820 or so beginning. All right. More recently, I have this. This is a U.S. perspective. It will be an interesting question later on, whether the same problem persists in the United Kingdom the way it persists in the United States. when well, we look in the United States and see the stock market crash of 1929 which symbolized, at least, the beginning of the Great Depression. And it produces the US federal securities laws in 1933 and 1934. More recently, we had a huge IPO bubble in 2000. And that was followed by the somewhat unrelated Enron and WorldCom accounting debacles and their bankruptcies in 2001 and 2002. And that joint experience produced uh, omnibus legislation, Sarbanes-Oxley, of 2002. Uh, More recently, of course, we've had the systemic risk crisis for which Lehman Brothers and AIG were the two paradigmatic failures, and that produced Dodd-Frank. All right. Uh, Now, this pattern has been noted before by many, but I don't think that it's gotten an adequate explanation. Yes, it's a pattern, but what's behind that pattern? And I want to talk a little bit about that. I also want to point to a corollary of this rule. The first rule is that We get reform legislation only after a major financial crash. A corollary is that um, regulatory intensity is not constant. We often talk about enforcement or regulation as if the intensity of the agency will be constant. But I think empirically you can observe that it waxes and wanes. And of course, it reaches a crescendo after a crash, possibly because the agency, agency has been embarrassed And the SEC was greatly embarrassed by a totally independent crisis, the Bernie Madoff failure, which has been their most signal failure in their entire history. Uh, And as a result, maybe not as a result, but interestingly, we see a unique level of enforcement intensity in one area. We have aggressive prosecution of insider trading in the U.S. at a level far exceeding prior levels of prosecution. Insider trading has almost nothing to do with the causes of 2008, but it does respond to a public demand for retribution and intensity of enforcement, and we are seeing that daily newspaper headlines in the United States today. I'm not against, believe me, I'm for um, enforcing insider trading, but it has almost no relationship uh, to the 2008 bubble uh, except that you tend to get demand for enforcement after a crash and after the embarrassment of an agency. As a result... There are a number of what I'll politely call free market critics who view this recurrent sequence of crash, then legislation, uh, as producing something very unfortunate, which they call bubble laws. And bubble laws, in their minds, produce something called quack corporate governance, a phrase that I'm not making up, but they put it in their titles of their articles so you know their position. Uh, now, from their perspective, there are three or four of these people, most notably, and they make three linked claims. One is that post-crash legislation is always rushed, hasty, and populist in character. Populist in character is maybe a word that doesn't translate from the US to the UK. It means it's from the boondock, that's redneck legislation that has no inherent logic to it. Uh, two, they argue that state laws are always superior to federal laws. Remember, the U.S. is a federal system with 50 states, and corporations are primarily regulated by state law in the United States, whereas the securities laws are at the federal level. Securities laws can possibly regulate anything in corporate governance. You can make an argument for it, but there's always been this uncertain division between state and federal law. And they argue that state law is better because it's more restrained. It's more restrained because states are marketing their charters in the market for corporate charters, and thus they are more restrained by the need to attract corporations, and they are not merely a political process. They are restrained by economic caution motivated by the desire to maximize uh, uh, revenue. That's their position. Finally, they argue argue that only in the post-crash period does federal regulation ever go beyond disclosure, and their view is disclosure is bad enough, but It should never go beyond the closure of the remedy. Therefore, they don't like what they call bubble laws. Uh, I refer in this paper to those taking this position as basically the Tea Party of corporate law scholarship. They they don't like that term, but they have a very linked position, and they are recognizable uh, in the U.S. academic community for their their common position. Now, what's the alternative position? Well, I think the rival perspective is that... uh, The explanation for this pattern of crash and then legislative response is because there's no other way to get legislation adopted that seeks to protect investors. This is because investors essentially are dispersed, disorganized, and unable to organize for collective action. Uh, In contrast, the financial services industry, which I've certainly worked for and have no uh, anger against, the financial services industry is uniquely well organized strongly incentivized, well-funded, and it's found ways that it can tax its free riders. If you want to belong to the Chamber of Commerce or the Business Roundtable, as all CEOs do, uh, they have to pay their dues, and those dues primarily go to funding political lobbying to protect the financial service industry from political action or other kinds of uh, confining regulation. All right. In political science terms, and this is something that I hope many of you might have seen in your early political science courses, uh, investors represent what political scientists call a latent group. And a latent group can be very large, but because it's not well organized, not cohesive, it has minimal political impact. And thus, the foundational work that discussed all this was Mancur Olson's The Logic of Collective Action, written 30-odd years ago, maybe more than that. I'm just getting older, maybe 40-odd years ago. But anyway, Mancur Olson's book points out and predicts and finds a lot of evidence since supporting it that the majority tends to be dominated over the long term by smaller, more cohesive, and strongly motivated interest groups who, because of their cohesion and their ability to tax their own members, are politically more effective. Whereas the larger group doesn't have the ability to tax the free riders. It's like a public goods problem. and Because you can't tax the free rider, you have less political clout. Now, if that's so, that leads to a dilemma. Why is it that we see the second half of the cycle, where we see legislation after the crash, after the market uh, disaster? Now here, uh, let's move on to what I'm arguing. Um, The answer of more recent political science since the time of Mancur Olson is that after a disaster, political entrepreneurs arise and they gain attention and electoral success by exploiting the popular discontent. But only when the public's attention is focused by the disaster or some other highly public event. There's a large literature on this applying it to environmental legislation, that there's an environmental disaster. Exxon Valdez. Uh, this pours oil all over the West Coast, and you get legislation organized by political entrepreneurs. Now, who are political entrepreneurs? In this theory, they're sort of the uh, political uh, analog to Schumpeter's economic entrepreneur, the risk-taking person who assembles capital and builds a new enterprise. Uh, Essentially, political entrepreneurs bear the transaction costs of organizing latent groups into effective political coalitions in order to secure political success for themselves. And in the US context, I would give you examples such as Eliot Spitzer, who did self-destruct later on. But Eliot Spitzer became first attorney general and governor of New York by pursuing an aggressively hostile attitude towards, approach towards Wall Street after the IPO crash and after the WorldCom and uh, uh, Enron debacles. And he succeeded. He organized legislation and reform, and he got elected governor of New York. Uh, the current governor, Andrew Cuomo, in New York, similarly took a, a strong approach after later scandals and again got public approval by organizing and expressing popular discontent. So that's this theory of the political entrepreneur who requires that there be an event that is focused public attention before he can organize effectively the generally passive majority into an effective political group. All right? Now, there are two further consequences of this pattern. Uh, because legislation has to be passed quickly in this sort of window of opportunity after the public event, uh, that legislation often is hasty, often is needs correction and or implementation. They may have passed broad legislation that gives an agency some power, and the agency has to decide how to use that power. Or they may have very vaguely defined terms that require a great deal of correction and focus and possibly judicial action. Uh, Next, uh, this Republican triumph, those who favored the political entrepreneur see this as a triumph of Republican government. Uh, But this triumph proves to be short-lived. Once the crisis has passed, the hegemony of the business powers, business interests, will predictably be restored, Uh, and if the legislation requires a lengthy implementation process, then that's the quieter moments at which we will again see the more powerful and more organized groups begin to weaken that legislation through the slow process of uh, implementation. Let me put this in a very simple diagram. Now, this was really written for law students, and you are law and finance masters, so you don't need this full explanation, but this is what I call the regulatory sign firm. In the period of time after the crash, regulatory scrutiny, fueled in part by the embarrassment of the regulatory agency that failed, is intense, reform legislation passes, and possibly passes quickly because the window of opportunity is brief. So on a vertical axis, we've got the intensity of regulatory scrutiny, and the time of crash, we see it ascending in the period right after the crash. But that's the first half of the regulatory cycle. And the second half, administrative imp- implementation is a much quieter, uh, more bureaucratic process occurring out of the, the theater of public political discourse. The public loses interest, or at least it can't maintain its interest, and the usual dominance of those repeat players who are better organized, uh, have larger funds available, begins to reassert itself. And as a result, in the second half of the regulatory sign curve, the intensity of regulatory scrutiny begins to wane, enforcement efforts slacken, uh, and equivocal implementation follows. Now, that's the generalization. And in the full version of this paper, I trace this through the uh, implementation and gradual relaxation of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. We're not talking about Sarbanes-Oxley today, we're talking about the future of Dodd-Frank, although that future is also foreshadowed by a lot of recent legislation that that have passed this last year. Okay. So realistically, the regulatory dilemma is that there is a choice, an unfortunate choice, often between hasty legislation or no legislation. And one side will say, bubble laws are bad, pass nothing. Uh, The alternative is to say this is a unique window of opportunity, pass something and it will be necessarily and correctly corrected during the implementation period because we know that the balance of advantage favors those who are being regulated and in the implementation process they will be able to remove the, the cruder, more poorly considered provisions and still leave us with something that may be desirable legislation. The Securities Act of 33 and of 34 lasted for 70 years or so, more or less well regulating the securities markets in the United States. So I don't think you can take the argument that anything passed after a disaster is always a failure. Okay. Uh, Now, based on that suggestion, that there is this natural cycle and that we're going to see legislative provisions that have a clear purpose being implemented equivocally, watered down, or sometimes properly corrected, let's take a look at what's been happening to Crank. Okay. Now, one further, first, further word. Uh, those who disagree with me say it's not as one-sided. Investors are not simply a working group. Uh, investors are backed by very powerful political forces. And Professor Romano has argued in an article that investors have very powerful allies: unions, public pension funds, and the plainest bar. Let me just make two points on this. Um, even if we assume that the interests of unions, pension funds, and the planets bar are on the side of investors, or on the side, more accurately, of regulating systemic risk, uh, there still is an extraordinary imbalance. Whether based on money spent or any other uh, available measure of influence, uh, participation, rulemaking, number of issues acted on, the political scientists who track this have found, and I'm quoting their basic conclusion, that uh, the finance and business industry consistently mobilize at roughly ten times the rate that those forces that might countervail them do. I'm not saying they shouldn't be able to do this. I'm not arguing there should be constraints on their ability to lobby and seek change in legislation. But I want to make clear just what the imbalance is. The recent surveys of lobbying find that business groups account for 71% of all lobbying expenditures in the United States, and unions account for 4.2% of expenditures. Unions don't stand alone, but that's a huge imbalance between 71% and 4%. Finally, uh, let's talk about the specific context of systemic risk. Dodd-Frank is not about investor protection. It's basically about systemic risk. And who are the natural champions of appropriate optimal systemic risk regulation? And the short answer is there are no natural political champions. Not only does the financial and banking industry want uh, minimal interference with their natural uh, systems, uh, but when we turn to the usual uh, champions of investor protection, whether it's the plaintiff's bar in the U.S., the unions or public pension funds, they don't identify with the issue of systemic risk. Systemic risk properly regulated probably requires curbing, some bank activities that can produce uh, greater lending uh, and lower interest rates, and that proper systemic risk regulation may have some chilling effect on economic expansion. As a result, even the most liberal allies, whether it's the NAACP in the United States or the unions, find that they're on the side of cheaper lending, more expansive credit. Uh, They do not want to see strong regulation of systemic risk, because it might curtail the mortgage market or reduce lending. The problem then, is that there is no natural political champion for systemic risk regulation, and that, produ- that produces a sharp drawn turn in the uh, regulatory sign curve once we get past the initial moment of enthusiastic legislative response. Okay. One last point. Not only is there this contrast between the forces of industry versus the smaller forces of investors, but as a result of a very important constitutional decision in the United States, called Citizens United, which I don't want to get into, uh, corporations have no longer nearly as restricted as they were in the past in the ability to make direct political contributions to political campaigns. You have to do it through a filter called the Political Action Committee. But there's a lot of evidence that corporate political activity can now directly uh, influence the political election cycle Uh, and that process is becoming more costly. As a generalization, the presidential candidacy is going to require a budget of well over a billion dollars. If you've got to raise money like that, the best people to talk to are the CEOs of the major banks and major financial sector players, and you find even liberal presidents, like our incumbent president, are making very nice to the financial sector in terms of raising capital. So we have a problem here in terms of the balance of political forces. The bottom line, I'll assert one last time, is that systemic risk management is a political orphan that few are willing to adopt or befriend in a very vocal or or, uh, aggressive manner. Bow to it, but the actual regulations have been quite soft. All right, now having said all that, it's time to start talking a little bit about systemic risk and its possible management. Again, this was written for ordinary law students, not sophisticated law and finance students, so I talk a little bit about what we mean by systemic risk and make the assertion, that although there's no universally accepted definition, the usual meaning is that because of interconnections between financial institutions, a local crisis can become a global crisis. And there is this risk in a simple image of the failure of the first institution can cause a cascade of falling dominoes. All right, And we saw that in 2008 when Seemingly a localized problem in the U.S. subprime mortgage market suddenly brought the threat of financial disaster across the world in a very rapid time, and a banking panic. Now let me assert that this problem, we look at it a little bit more closely, has three different faces, and we have to look at the three faces of systemic risk because answers to the first don't answer the second and the third. So the first face of systemic risk is that a financial institution can be, quote, too big to fail, TBTF. All right. Lehman wasn't, or it's was debatable whether it was or it wasn't, but almost certainly Citigroup or Bank of America would be, and their collapse would produce uh, a banking panic, a liquidity crisis, and lending would halt, and kind of economic like expansion would stop. All right. That's the first phase, too big to fail. Uh, if you think that's the problem, you might say, as many have said in the U.S., we need to downsize banks and make them smaller, and make the big four in the U.S. the big eight. But now comes the second phase of systemic risk. Uh, a financial institution can be too interconnected to fail, because many institutions are counterparties, such as through the existence of AIG as the central uh, institution, knitting together the financial markets through credit default swaps. Uh, interconnected institutions, now can all fail, even though none one of them is too big. And that means that a reform of just downsizing institutions, which may be desirable, still faces a problem. Because if you take the four biggest banks and turn them into the eight biggest banks, you still may have that cascade of falling dominoes that if an AIG collapses will cause what was four banks to be now eight banks to all fail in succession because they're all knitted too closely through financial interconnections. Now, let's go to the third phase. Uh, The third phase is the financial institutions can be too risk correlated. So the failure of one, even though there were no direct counterparty relationships, can cause the failure of others. An example here might be that because of market pressures, all major financial institutions in the U.S. were heavily invested in the asset-backed securitization process. And they had large portfolios of asset-backed securities. And that is the Citigroup story. They had a huge portfolio. They owned themselves of asset-backed securitizations. And when we get the first failure, when Bear Stearns begins to fail at the beginning of this crisis, what do they have to do? They have to try to market in desperation all of the asset-backed securities that they own that drives the market price down. And as the market price falls, all these other institutions, even though they're not counterparties, are seeing their own assets fall, their own inventories are under pressure, and they begin to need to sell also because of the approaching panic. And we get market pressure caused, I think, ultimately by the, the securities marketplace requiring banks to conform to basically the same competitive pattern. If you didn't do asset-backed securitizations as a major U.S. bank, you were going to fall behind the others. The one that didn't, by the way, the one that did the least, was JP Morgan Chase, and they were exempt for a while, but, but they've proven they're not immune from making terrible mistakes as well. We'll come back to that. All right, so market pressures and global globalization has probably increased the risk of, of firms being too risk-correlated to fail. So those are the three different faces. Now, let's go more directly to what caused the 2008 crisis. And I would say, surveying all of the comments of many, many commentators, you could probably group the principal theories for what caused this crisis under three major headings. First, we'd have what I'll call the moral hazard story. And the moral hazard story asserts, basically, that executive compensation caused the crash. And people like Lucian Medchuk are probably the best-known proponents of this view. Here the claim is that a rapid shift towards incentive-based compensation at financial institutions of focus senior managers on short-term results. And for example, if you're running <coughs> asset-backed securitizations at Citigroup, and you see the ability to make a $100 million in one year to two years if you can get 100 of these deals to close, and numbers like that were possible, uh, you don't really have to worry about what's going to happen to these deals five, seven, eight years later because if you've got a hundred million in the first three years, you're not too worried about the long-term future of that institution. And that's the moral hazard story. The second story that I think is even more basic is what I'll call the perverse subsidy story. This story says that if creditors believe, based on past experience, that too big to fail banks will never be allowed to fail and will always be bailed out, then knowing that you have the implicit guarantee of the government behind the bank, you can lend to the bank much too cheaply and much too much, and the bank can borrow too much, become over-leveraged, and indeed shareholder pressure may pressure that bank into becoming over-leveraged because this is too good a subsidy, this cheap interest, to pass up. Even if the manager doesn't want to become that leveraged, he may face shareholder pressure forcing him to do that. Right, that's the uh, the, the uh, perverse subsidy story, and probably the best-known proponents of that are a uh, well-known paper by uh, Admati and uh, Hellwig and several other people, and it's, they are emphasizing the implicit subsidy here as the cheap course. There's a third course, I think, uh, and this is if you start looking at the over-the-counter derivatives market and use AIG as the paradigm. This is bounded rationality. A bounded rationality has a long history in economics, going back to March and Simon, Simon won the Nobel Prize for discussing it, and uh, Oliver Williamson has been the most recent proponent and has coined the term bounded rationality. But its implication is that not only the industry players, but also the regulators, are subject to cognitive limitations, and they don't fully understand the risks they're actually subject to. So AIG hired the best and the brightest of all financial engineers, and they figured out that there was no way these portfolios could fail, at least if you believe the credit rating agencies, which was problem one. The problem two, even if there was no way that the actual portfolios would fail, they assumed that meant they had no problem. And AIG's real problem was not that their portfolios that they were insuring were toxic; it was more that they were subject to the risk of a overwhelming margin call, because if they were downgraded. Then suddenly overnight, and this did happen, they faced margin calls of $70 billion that they simply could not meet. Now, why did they face those calls, and why didn't they predict it? They failed to consider that a downgrade was really a political decision made by actors, the credit rating agencies, who were also under great political pressure. And thus, they, their economic model never considered that they would have their parent company, not their insuring sub. So, downgraded for reasons that maybe were partly political. In any event, neither the regulators nor the regulator saw the possibility of these margin calls. And that same thing destroyed MF Global about four or five months ago when it also made bets, bets that now look like they're fairly sound, uh, but they could not survive the margin call over that interim, and they collapsed again. Now, the original collapse was caused by what we thought was the safest security of all, home mortgages. The MF global failure was caused by what we thought was the safe, second safest security, sovereign debt. No one says sovereign debt is safe tonight, but you go back a year ago and sovereign debt looked like it was pretty safe stuff. Uh, as a result, cognitive limitations are always there, and the next crisis will come out of an unexpected dimension, just as all the last crisis are. Now let's talk about the search for remedies, what Dodd-Frank did, and how they have been checkmated by this regulatory sign for a problem. Uh, let's go to the first problem, executive compensation, probably the most discussed and the most polit- politically popular reform. Uh, okay, executive compensation is a problem, but who is responsible? Dodd-Frank works on the assumption that financial managers receive stealth compensation, they wrote their own contracts, and shareholders didn't know enough to stop them. As a result, because they were able to focus on the short run, executives wrote contracts under which they shared in the financial institution's gains, but never in the financial institution's losses. And that gives you, that one side of the asymmetry, gives you a moral hazard problem. If you look at the actual evidence, and this evidence has chiefly been collected by Renee Stoltz, a very well known financial economist, uh, he finds that there's much evidence that the incentive, that the more that financial institutions aligned the incentives of senior managers with the incentives of shareholders, the worse they did in 2008. And that sounds paradoxical. But the more shareholder friendly your corporate governance was, the worse you did in a crisis. Uh, because shareholders were a force for greater risk taking, and the more you align managers' incentives with shareholders, the more we got a shift towards higher acceptance of risk. Bottom line, then, empowering shareholders may not only not be the answer, it may compound the problem, because shareholders have incentives that, frankly, are as bad as managers. And from a systemic system, from a systemic risk perspective, we cannot assume that shareholders are the the champion of moderation. They may have worse incentives than do managers. Okay, let's put this historically. Shareholders had used stock options, at least in the United States, for about 25 years to induce financial managers to take on more risk and accept greater leverage. Uh, possibly shareholders also thought they would be bailed out by uh, the government if there was a financial crisis. But the history really starts with the 1980s, a long time ago. In the 1980s, we suddenly have the emergence of financial, of institutional investors as the truly powerful dominating force in corporate governance. And institutional investors sort of came of age in a world in which managers had created the form of the large conglomerate corporation. And the large conglomerate corporation assembled a portfolio of very different companies. What did that do? It protected the managers from risk because a portfolio of diversified companies was unlikely to fail. But it produced great corporate inefficiency. And institutional investors were looking at the fact that they owned large blocks of stock in very inefficient conglomerates. And the 1980s was the period of time in which institutional investors asserted themselves and essentially broke up the large financial conglomerates. They did it first by supporting takeovers and leverage buyouts, but they did it second by the aggressive use of stock options as the principal form of incentive compensation And they insisted on it, not only for managers, but for directors of large business corporations. This did achieve what they wanted. Managers no longer pursued size maximization. They started pursuing shareholder wealth maximization because they were being compensated in options. And that made them look at what the stock price was, rather than what the size of the corporate earnings were. Previously, they'd been compensated on a basis under which large size meant large compensation. Now, they were shifted to a more economic-oriented test. But that momentum continues. And institutional investors continue to support incentive compensation as a good thing. And in the world of financial institutions, incentive compensation can quickly shift from being a good thing to a bad thing. Now, what does Dodd-Frank do about it? Essentially, Dodd-Frank is (coughs) schizophrenic. Okay. Uh, On the one hand, it increased shareholder power protections, such as access to the proxy statement uh, and say on pay, which is well known in England, uh, its advisory votes on executive compensation. All of these were intended to give shareholders greater power over managerial compensation. Whether, however, that's going to produce the desired outcome is another question. Now the other thing that Dodd-Frank does on executive compensation is it adopted section 956, which is frankly a very paternalistic provision which authorized regulators to prohibit excessive incentive-based compensation at, quote, covered financial institutions where the regulator could determine that that system of incentive-based compensation, quote, could lead to material financial loss, all right? Broad, broad, but nebulous power given to the regulator that has to be construed by the regulators. Well, what happened? What happened? we get this to go, okay, here's where we hit the latter half of the regulatory sign curve, Uh, corporate governance reforms. The SEC responded very quickly to access to the proxy statement, and they adopted Rule 14A11, which gave uh, the ability to shareholders to conduct low-cost proxy contests by which they could elect one, two, or three directors of their own choice uh, to the board. Never control, but a strong voice for, say, institutional investors on the board. What happens next? The better organized groups, the Business Roundtable in the Chamber of Commerce, sued in Washington in front of something called the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and they invalidated the SEC rule on the grounds that the SEC had failed to conduct an adequate cost-benefit analysis. While I don't see proxy access as the answer to systemic risk, this event was very significant for the SEC because Congress had told them, you can do this. Not that you have to do this, but you can do this. You can give them proxy access, which has been a political debate for 10 years or more. The SEC did this, and the D.C. Circuit, which is probably the most conservative of all our federal courts in the U.S., invalidated saying did isn't an adequate cost-benefit analysis. That has left the SEC somewhat traumatized because anything they adopt now that the business community does not like, they fear will be challenged on a cost-benefit analysis in front of a circuit court of appeals which is extremely skeptical of governmental regulation and quick to find the cost-benefit analysis inadequate for any reform they don't like. And that's left the SEC somewhat checkmate. All right, uh, now let's go to the 956 side. This is that paternalistic provision that says you can stop executive compensation, incentive-based executive compensation, if you find that it's going to lead to material loss. It's going to give too great an incentive to take on risk. Now, the initial problem was how to construe this legislation, which just very broadly authorized regulators to step in after first requiring disclosure of what the structure of this compensation was. The uh, 956 somewhat vaguely instructs uh, the regulator, which is all financial regulators, not just the SEC, uh, that they must require covered financial institutions to disclose, quote, the structure of all incentive-based compensation paid officers, directors, that could lead to material financial loss. But what does that mean? Um, you could say, the one thing was clear was you couldn't require the disclosure of individual officers' salaries. Because there was a fear that would hit lynch mobs out in the street and embarrass them. But you could require the disclosure of incentive compensation being paid by the firm and what the average amounts being paid were. What would such disclosure look like? I'm now going to show you the most interesting slide in this discussion, because this is a slide you'll find nowhere else. Only in 2009, really the height of the crisis, did Andrew Cuomo, then the New York Attorney General, now governor, force all of the major (coughs) financial institutions to disclose what their incentive-based compensation was for the prior year. The prior year being 2008, the disaster year of all disaster years. And here is the disclosure he's gotten, no one else has gotten, and no institution is willing to give this disclosure again. But Look at this slide. Now we see here. Several of the largest U.S. financial institutions look first at Citigroup and Merrill Lynch. Their earnings in 2008 were hugely negative. They lost $27.7 billion at Citigroup. Okay, How many bonuses did they pay out in 2009 based on the 2008 compensation? The answer is, having lost $27 billion, you paid out incentive bonuses, not salaries, of $5.3 billion. And Merrill Lynch, well, they managed to lose just about the same, $27.6 billion, and they paid out $3.6 billion. They paid it out, they were being required to get a little bit more modest how much they paid out. But this is an extraordinary bonus pool for a company that's been bankrupted by losses. One might have thought that if you've been bankrupted, it's not a good year to pay out incentive bonuses. But you don't understand the deep roots of the bonus culture within financial institutions. Now, let's talk about firms that didn't fail. Let's look at Morgan Stanley, for example. It didn't fail. It made money in 2008, 1.7 billion. So if you make 1.7 billion, how much bonuses do you pay out? Well, it's 4.5 billion that they basically paid out. sort of a, a three to one or four to one ratio, uh, way in excess of what your earnings were. And the same is true for uh, Goldman Sachs, which they only doubled it. They were more modest than the rest, but they made two billion, and they paid out 4.8 billion. OK. So we're seeing that the bonus pool, even for firms that's losing money and are really bankrupt, can be very high. And for firms making money, the bonus bill pool can be a multiple of their total earnings. We're also seeing that disclosure might be relevant because the practices vary significantly. Look at the number of bonuses receiving, number of employees receiving bonuses. We look. This is broken into bonuses of greater than one million and bonuses of greater than three million. Now over at the winner here is J.P. Morgan. Which uh, paid out uh, to bonuses of more than one million to 1,600 people, and bonuses of more than three million to 200 people. Now they, of course, had the best year. They they were the least threatened. Uh, They paid out more. But we're seeing a large number of people. At Merrill Lynch, which was bankrupted, 600, not nearly 700 people get bonuses of more than a million, and 150 get bonuses of more than three million. These practices vary with the firm, and that means that individual disclosure might be more relevant. Okay? That would suggest, gee, 956 should be interpreted by the regulators to give similar disclosures on an ongoing basis so we can see what's going on. That will not happen. Uh, see. 956 will not produce anything like the foregoing disclosure. This is because, notwithstanding its rather broad statutory language, which could authorize anything. The industry has already won this battle. maybe has already won the war over executive compensation, and on several levels. On the first level, looking at the broad language of 956, regulators have read this language to not require any quantitative disclosure, no numbers at all. What they've instead said is that you must describe the structure of incentive-based compensation arrangements. So you can write us a ten page narrative in single space type about how you determine bonuses. And of course, they'll write that they consider many factors, all of them prudently and carefully, and including among these factors are the next three pages of different factors that can be covered. Uh, now, And then they'll tell you that we are very concerned that, this, that none of these factors produce excessive compensation, so we'll give very specific review of anything that goes over a certain level. That's a discussion of the structure of your compensation arrangements but it involves no quantitative disclosures. OK, let's go to the second thing. I'm going to give you three objections to how 956 was interpreted. Secondly, more was required of the very largest banks, those banks that have over 50 billion assets. These are truly the too-big-to-fail banks. And there, the requirements were that you had to disclose, kind of requirements were, that you had to disclose to the regulator uh, not only the compensation paid to executive officers, the incentive compensation paid to executive officers, but also the incentive compensation paid to any other person who could cause material losses to the institution. So that led to a question. How do we decide, do we define as regulators who these persons are who are not executive officers, but it could cause substantial losses to the institution? And what did they decide? They decided the only way to do this is to let the firm tell us. So we won't define who can cause substantial losses. We'll ask you to disclose what other persons in your organization can cause substantial losses. Uh, the incentive to make broad disclosure that there are many people that can cause material losses is very modest, and the incentive to say almost no one can cause substantial losses is very strong. Uh, so they've left it to the companies, that were, the very big 50 billion up banks, to tell the government, Who else besides executive officers could possibly cause substantial losses? All right? Third point uh, there was a lot of attention when the rules came out because the rules do say that executive officers at the very biggest banks, the 50 million enough banks and assets, 50 billion enough banks and assets, have to have a deferral of at least 50% of their bonus. So if you've gotten a 3 million or 5 million bonus in this year, you have to defer 50% of that for up to three years so we can see whether or not these profits evaporate. Obviously, uh, J.P. Morgan this week, uh, profits received in the CIO division did evaporate as they incurred a $3 billion loss, and the idea here was that those executive officers would have to be accountable to the firm and have clawbacks under which they'd have to give back some of that bonus, up to one-half, if within the next three years uh, their wonderful profits suddenly evaporate. Okay, now what's happened? Uh, This 50% uh, bonus retention rule and the possible clawback has been applied only to executive officers and not to any person that the firm itself identifies as capable of causing substantial losses to the firm. So even if the firm says, yes, we have 15 people who could also cause us material losses who are not executive officers, there is no obligation to apply the clawback to them, even though you concede that they could cause substantial losses. So the bottom line here, I'll put it in sort of three elements. Uh, No quantitative aggregate disclosures are required. Each too-big-to-fail institution decides for itself, not pursuant to any governmentally imposed criteria, uh, who could cause it a substantial loss and what to do about them because they're not subject to any kind of clawback or deferral. And Even if you identify someone as being capable of causing you a substantial loss, the three-year deferral does not apply to them. You can make your own individual decisions. What explains this? Let me give you my interpretation, but I'm going to see a different one. They have done this very conservative interpretation of 956 to protect the banks from what the banks really feared. The banks, the industry, did not want executive compensation rules to apply to their star traders, because if the star traders were subject to a clawback or to any kind of restriction on their receipt of incentive compensation, and the government could say this was just too much incentive compensation, then what might happen? Well, it might happen is that the star trader would move to a hedge fund, would move abroad to Europe, would do something else to get beyond the reach of government regulation of his compensation. But the problem of giving this broad exemption under which star traders don't have to be covered by any of these rules, even the disclosure of their compensation, is that if you look at the modern history of banking, the largest losses are usually caused by the star trader. You can think back to Nicholas Leeson at Barings in '95, or Jerome Kerville at Societe Generale a few years ago. Maybe in a few more years we'll talk about the London Whale as part of this, though I actually think the London Whale is more the agent of people higher up who are giving him instructions. But traders are typically the people who cause large losses to financial institutions, and we are seeing, bottom line here, we're seeing that the executive compensation rules have been largely nullified, hollowed out by regulators who don't want to cause competitive injury to major financial institutions. I'm not saying they've been captured. I'm saying that People at places like the Federal Reserve are very concerned about the competitive role of banks and don't want them to lose their star traders. From my perspective, if the star traders move from a a Citigroup to a hedge fund, that's all the better. Hedge funds can take this risk because their failure concerns no one. The failure of the bank is much too important. But from the standpoint of the Federal Reserve, a competitive injury to the banks is something that we've got to avoid at all costs. Now, I just talked about the first of the three basic scenarios, and I won't go through all the rest of them at equivalent length. I I know your patience is running. But let's just spend a minute or two on the too-big-to-fail subsidy. This was the second justification, I think probably the most important explanation, for why we had the 2008 financial crisis. And Dodd-Frank responds to this in three different ways. Resolution authority, a new expedited procedure under which you could shut down an insolvent bank without having to go through the very costly and slow process of bankruptcy, which takes forever and produces a certain deadweight loss. Next we actually have the Volcker Rule, which is an attempt to say, if, if you're too big to fail, we have to regulate you so you don't fail, and we have to prophylactically and paternalistically say there are kinds of risky activities that you can't engage in if you're too big to fail. And the Volcker Rule, as you've all been hearing all this week, is becoming subject to varying interpretations and it's not clear just how broadly it will reach. Finally, we have prudential standards, which include standards requiring higher equity capital. And that's the subject also of Basel III, and that's being intensely debated both in the US and Europe. Let me just tell you what I think has happened in the Dodd-Frank process of implementation. Resolution authority would allow regulators to uh, unwind a too big to fail institution if they are motivated to do that. They have to go through a procedure by which a committee, almost two-thirds vote, decides of all the financial regulators, decides that they want to take action to shut down that major bank. Will they do that? I think the political incentives are overwhelming, not to shut it down, but to kick the can down the road, to delay and defer, because shutting down a major bank would be a political failure for any administration. It would say, the opposition party would say, see, they're so incompetent, this bank failed, and all they can do is shut it down, they couldn't stop it earlier on. Thus, I think any political administration, either party, will be under strong pressure not to shut the bank down, but try to prop it up, keep it going, in order to avoid the political costs of a major failure on their watch. We'll see, but what's, what's happening, Dodd-Frank, is that the ability of the Federal Reserve to do a bailout has been greatly curtailed. We'll have to see what happens to know if it's been fully curtailed. But the legislation thought that it had totally curtailed the bailout authority and that instead was going to force resolution or liquidation by a very rapid procedure. But that requires the political will to do that, and it's the political will that's lacking in the latter half of the regulatory curve. Now the Volcker Rule. Let's talk about the Volcker Rule that's already occasioned probably the greatest lobbying efforts in modern financial history in the United States, going back at least 50 years or more. Essentially, the Volcker rule would prohibit proprietary trading. But it's not so easy to define just what proprietary trading means. Uh, The rule already has a great deal of political opposition because um, there's a good deal of lobbying saying it should not apply to sovereign debt because that's being unfair to Europe, which needs U.S. bankers to come in and help trade their sovereign debt. Keep, help them trade those safe little securities that Greece keeps issuing. Uh, all right. Second, there's a broad market-making exemption. And third, there's an argument that the rule should not be applied extraterritorially. And of course, where was J.P. Morgan doing all this risky trading? Of course, they were doing it in London. And it's arguable, depending on how you read the extraterritorial applications, that that will be inside or outside. In J.P. Morgan case, we get to the quiet changes that go on. Because the statute is written seems to say, that, well, you can hedge. We all agree we want a bank to hedge. Hedging is effectively insuring risk. We want you to insure risk. But it said you had to insure risk basically in terms of specific assets or specific positions. And the industry fought back and said, no, let us insure risk and hedge on a portfolio-wide basis. And there's certainly an argument that you want portfolio-wide insurance. The problem is that when you start defining portfolio-wide hedging, it may give the imperceptible ability to the person making the decision to not only hedge, but to go into a speculative directional bet. So J.P. Morgan had the largest portfolio of investment securities within the U.S. Bank. They had a very different mix of loans and assets. They had a very large uh, 30% sort of investment securities uh, component to their asset portfolio. Therefore, they needed to hedge. But when they came to hedging, it now looks at least as if they, they did two things wrong. They used the wrong metric, their VAR numbers were all screwed up. But secondly, it looks like the people who were doing this hedging were trying to make money on the side by placing a large directional bet, and they were, they were looking to the then pending. There still is no operative Volcker rule. No rules have been finally adopted. But the rules that were out there seemed to say, of course you can engage in portfolio hedging without defining what portfolio hedging means. And if you've got a three million position, and you put a six million hedge on a six million hedge on that, you have hedged to fifty percent, hundred percent, and you made a directional bet to another hundred percent, and that's where there was ambiguity in the rules, and that's where the battle will still be played. Uh, hedging is not a self-defining term, and the industry is very good at getting the largest possible uh, uh, breadth of discretion uh, into those rules. Okay. Lastly, let me talk about the over-the-counter derivatives market. This is where we saw AIG cause a crisis because no one knew. There was so little transparency that no one knew that AIG was really behind all of the credit default swaps, not just the ones they issued, but they were reinsuring the ones that Goldman Sachs and others issued. Had there been more transparency, it's at least arguable that if the market saw that every credit default swap ultimately depended upon the credit of Goldman Sachs, not what to mean. Of uh, might have worked if it was Goldman Sachs, but uh, <laughs> it depended upon the credit of AIG. There might have been much more fear, much less willingness to depend upon credit default swaps for your risk hedging problems. Okay. As a result, the legislation says there has to be now greater transparency in this market by trading these swaps over exchanges and running them through clearinghouses. And clearinghouses, in theory, will require will require higher margin, more realistic margin levels. There simply was not margin between, at the outset, between uh, uh, AIG and most of its counterparties. Okay, Uh, the problem with all this is that the exemptions overwhelm the rule. The first exemption is the in-user exemption. And this means that someone like American Airlines can say, we actually use gasoline, so we have the right to hedge gasoline prices. But they're hedging them with a financial institution. A financial institution could put billions of dollars into these hedges the financial institution is becoming quite exposed to sudden market movements. All right? Uh, There are other problems in this area. The biggest problem is that we may have designed a system under which the newly created clearinghouses will themselves fail. There's one risk that really should cause people to lose sleep at night. It is the danger that a governmentally-run clearinghouse, more or less a bureaucratic institution, will be systematically overreached by much smarter trading partners until the clearinghouse itself is about to fail, and that would be as great a consequence as an AIG failure or the failure of Lehman Brothers. So I've taken your time for a while now. Let me summarize with a conclusion. Financial institutions rushed over the cliff in 2008, and I think there were three general explanations. You take your pick. I'm not assigning priority. There were cognitive failures, which I think AIG shows pretty clearly. Uh, There was a moral hazard problem which we see in executives at Lehman Brothers continuing to pursue an undiversified real estate strategy in what was seen as an overheated market where decline was coming. Uh, And there are problems about the perverse subsidy under which banks borrow too cheaply and too much, uh, because everyone thinks they'll be bailed out. And that creates exactly the wrong incentives. But how much has changed? Well, most of what Dodd-Frank has done, uh, holding aside the requirement for greater capital adequacy, uh, has been largely undercut in the rule implementation process. The rules are fairly weak. This could shift. There could be a new crisis. It could be that J.P. Morgan is a blessing, because J.P. Morgan will change the dynamic over debate of the Volcker rule. But we're seeing a process that I think has played out several times before in US history. Uh, we saw the savings and loan crisis in the 1990s, the long-term management capital management crisis of 1998, the IPO bubble of 2000. Enron, WorldCom, and Associated Failures in 2002. Bernie Madoff, who got away with a fraud for decades because he was too reputable, too well-known, and too highly placed for the SEC to really examine it closely. Lehman AIG in 2008, MF Global in 2011. And this small, this is only a hiccup at J.P. Morgan, but it shows that even under a period when there should be intense scrutiny, uh, very aggressive hedging can turn into directional bets. Okay, this is a halftime report. But I'm suggesting that the uh, regulatory sign curve today suggests that the problem of systemic risk has not been solved. It's going to remain with us, and we are likely to see, likely underneath the shadow of a future overhang, where the next crisis will come from. I don't know. Although Greece could certainly answer that question fairly quickly. Uh, So I'm suggesting, (coughs) from the U.S. perspective, the regulatory sign curve is a major problem. And the interesting question—one of the questions to ask me about, or you to tell me about is whether we have similar problems in the United Kingdom or in Europe, or whether there's a different political structure here that doesn't produce the same unwinding of reform legislation in the years after the pressure of the crash begins to subside. At this point, I've gone more than long enough, but still left a good half an hour or so for you to dissect my thesis and take it apart. you want to recognize the question?